everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Students Talk Security podcast series. My name is Joey Simone. I'm a third-year fellow in the Notre Dame International Security Center and a senior at the university. I'm here today with Professor Thanos P. Dokos. Professor Dokos received his PhD in international relations from Cambridge University and has held research positions at the Peace Research Institute of Frankfurt and the Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University. Dokos has previously served as the Director for Research and Strategic Studies Division for the Hellenic Ministry of National Defense and as an advisor on NATO issues to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In 1999, he moved to the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy as Director of Research. In 2006, he became Director General of the Think Tank. Dokos has also taught at the University of Athens and Piraeus, the Hellenic National Defense College, the Diplomatic Academy, the, and the Hellenic National Security School, and currently teaches at College Year in Athens. He's a specialist in Greek-Turkish relations and Mediterranean security. Professor Dokos, thank you so much for being here with me today. It's a pleasure to join you from, from Greece, and also a, a great pleasure to see one of my uh, old, or not too old, that was uh, students at CYA. That was uh, a year ago, Joy? Yeah, just a year ago. We've been not lots happening that year for sure. But um, thank you again for being here. And um, if you don't mind, I think we'll just jump right in. Um, one of the big uh, hot topics of the Mediterranean region, and especially for Greece, is Greece-Turkish relations. And I was wondering, what do you think the future holds for that relationship? Well, 2020 has been a difficult year, not only because of COVID-19, but also because of heightening tension between Greece and Turkey for a number of reasons. It started with the refugee question, which Turkey tried to uh, instrumentalize and, and use it uh, as a means to put pressure on, on the EU uh, via Greece. And then we had a flare-up in the Eastern Med and, and the Aegean. Uh, should I dare to make a prediction for the future? Well, uh, tension has been relatively lower during the past couple of weeks. Uh, the two countries uh, are scheduled to start talks, to resume talks, which uh, uh, were interrupted in 2016. Uh, or in an effort to resolve bilateral issues. Um, one can, one should be optimistic, uh, but one should also be cautious because the problems are quite complex. It's not clear that there is political will on both sides. Being a Greek, I would say this goes mostly for Turkey. It's a complicated situation. Uh, the good thing is uh, talks will start soon, probably next week. Uh, but, of course, it, those will be difficult talks, and um, who knows what the future will bring. Um, hopefully not a, a renewal of tensions, but it cannot be excluded. Definitely. Uh, thank you for, for saying that. And I was wondering if you can maybe jump in a little bit into the dispute among the Aegean Islands. Can you give us kind of a quick rundown of what's going on, and if you think there are any possible solutions to the dispute? Well, there are two categories of issues. The first is related to maritime zones, and that means continental shelf, exclusive economic zone, uh, and territorial waters. Second category, and this is something that Turkey has been pushing for in the last few years, is sovereignty over a number of uh, Greek islands, some of them inhabited. Now, if the question is, can the first category be somehow resolved? Is there room for compromise and a possible solution? The answer is yes. Uh, if the question goes to the second 
list of, of issues, the answer is a categorical no. I mean, this is about sovereignty. These islands have been inhabited by Greeks for a very long time. Sovereignty and ownership cannot be discussed. Interesting, thank you. And um, another thing that you mentioned that I would like to touch on, if you don't mind, is the influx of refugees. Could you touch a little bit more on how the uh, refugee crisis has affected the relationship between Greece and Turkey? Well, uh, interestingly and ironically, this should have been an issue that brings the two countries closer together because both of them, in a different way, are shouldering a burden. Now, Turkey is now home to um, three and a half million refugees, mostly from Syria. Uh, and, and Greece is also hosting a number of people that are trying to cross to the European Union. They're, for the time being, they're stranded in Greece. Their asylum applications are, are being examined. So Greece has been saying, you know, we should recognize what Turkey is doing. Let's help them as much as we can. Now, Turkey's uh, actions were in a different direction, but at the end of the day, this is a major problem both for Turkey and for the EU. And this has little to do nowadays with Syria. It started with Syria, with refugees. Now, most of the people trying to cross are economic migrants coming from you know, Afghanistan, African countries, and, and so on and so forth. And this is also a major challenge for the EU for the forthcoming future, because the EU remains you know, the, the only developed region and, and stable region uh, you know, which is accessible to, to people from Africa and, and most parts of Asia. You know, they can't go to the US, they can't go to Canada. It's difficult to go to Australia. For most of them, the only you know, possible solution seeking a better life is the EU. So the EU has to come up with a common policy on how to manage that issue because those flows are not going to stop for economic reasons, because of climate change, and also because conflict will continue to happen uh, in, in various parts of, of this broad region. So this is going to be one of the most important future challenges for the EU, and we should come up with some kind of common policy. Definitely, thank you. And I just have to ask, are you optimistic that we can reach a policy, a common policy like this? Good question, and this is going to be uh, one of the main topics uh, to be discussed uh, the, uh, tomorrow and the day after at the summit meeting of EU leaders. Um, the European Commission produced a, a draft paper on this issue, which continues, unfortunately, to divide the Europeans. You have you know, roughly two group of states, uh, not equal number of states in, in, its, in its group, but some of them are quite unwilling to take any, even a small number of refugees to be resettled and, and migrants to be resettled in their own countries. Others are more accommodating. So this is one of the great dividing lines uh, inside the EU. Uh, I, I'm not terribly optimistic about a short-term agreement. It will still take time and bargaining inside the EU in an effort to come up with a solution. Great, thank you. And then sticking to the topic of the EU, um, it seems like it's not very likely that Turkey will be able to obtain membership into the EU. Um, do you believe that they have a chance to do so? And if they cannot, will it become a big problem for future EU-Turkey relations? Well, let me try to answer that question in a broader manner and talk about EU enlargement. 
Now, the EU went through a major uh, enlargement in the early 2000s. We took in 10 new members, mostly from Central and Eastern Europe, plus Malta and Cyprus. Now, um, we realized that some of those countries were not ready for membership. So what you have now, or we have had for the past few years, is the so-called enlargement fatigue you know, or indigestion. Uh, and that makes a number of EU countries very skeptical about further enlargement. So if you look at the list of candidates, first in line are some uh, countries in the Western Balkans, like uh, Albania, North Macedonia, uh, Serbia. Now, good news is these are small countries. It won't be difficult. Well, they still have to do their homework. So it's not a question about tomorrow. It will take them a few years to, to implement the necessary reforms. But the good news is these are small countries in terms of size and economy. So they can be more easily integrated. Now, Turkey, and one could add to that category, uh, a country like Ukraine, which has a different set of problems. Now, Turkey is a big country. Uh, and it's also, and it's not a politically correct thing to say, but you know, many Europeans are saying, not openly, but you know, Turkey is a different country, mainly because of religion. Now, uh, obviously, for a number of reasons, which have to do with the domestic political situation uh, and, and the fact that you have a, uh, some authoritarian tendencies in, Europe, in, in Turkey over the past few years. Now, obviously, Turkey is not ready. But I would never say uh, Turkey will never join the EU. I never say never. Uh, let's, let's give them a chance. Let's keep working. Let's keep the door open. It will certainly take a few years, um, more than the other candidates. Uh, but I think we should continue the, the negotiations. Uh, because if we close the door, then Turkey may start, and, and we have seen some signals of that. Right? Turkey um, is tempted to take a different direction, to look more towards Asia, you know, to countries like uh, China, perhaps, or, or, or Russia. So I think it's important to try to keep Turkey close to the transatlantic family as much as we can. Definitely. I, I definitely hope that we can find a way to do that. And um, do you believe that Turkey has a future as a Western country? Do you think we can find a way to keep them close to the West? Um, difficult question. And you have a number of, of, of scholars and, and policy practitioners in the U.S. You know, saying that, well, uh, asking the question, who lost Turkey? Uh, and is it too late uh, to bring Turkey back into the Western camp? I'm not that pessimistic. Uh, if anything, I cannot see any uh, equally attractive alternative for Turkey. So, I mean, um, their biggest trading partner uh, is the EU. Uh, they're part of NATO and they still have an alliance and, and a good relationship with the US in terms of security. So it's difficult to imagine Turkey, not impossible, but difficult to imagine Turkey taking a different path. Yes, there will be friction, there will be problems that we need to address and resolve. Uh, but taking a, a completely different path and, and, and moving closer to China, let's say, I don't see that happening. Awesome, that's, that's very good to hear. And um, I guess kind of building off the, the question of Turkey's role in the world, a lot has changed since the 2016 failed coup d'etat on President Erdogan. Um, how do you think that's changed Turkey's politics and their outlook on the world? 
Well, uh, that was a major milestone. Uh, it has affected President Erdogan personally. Uh, he was close to being shot if, if he was captured by uh, the uh, uh, Putsists, by the special forces sent, sent to the hotel to, to, to arrest him. Uh, and, and I think that affected him psychologically. So he has taken a very tough stance against uh, all the alleged uh, supporters of the coup. Um, and that, of course, has, been, has had an impact on the quality of Turkey's democracy. So today, Turkey looks less like a European, Western-type uh, democracy and more like an authoritarian state. You know, no freedom of press, uh, lots of people in jail without any uh, official justification, uh, no respect for human rights. The Kurdish problem is still as bad as it was in the 80s and 90s. So lots of problems. It was not only the coup, of course, but that was a major factor. That also had an impact on, on foreign policy. Now, of course, the trend was visible even before the coup. Turkey and President Erdogan personally has a very ambitious agenda. Uh, he wants to uh, make Turkey not only a regional power, but a global power, you know, be part of the uh, 10 most important and most influential powers uh, globally. Is that um, feasible? I think Turkey may have fallen into a classic trap uh, that all uh, or lots of powers have fallen in the past, which is strategic overextension, you know, have more ambitious objectives uh, than uh, the means to implement them. But that remains to be seen. Definitely. Uh, thank you. And then kind of shifting focus a little bit just to the Mediterranean um, in general. One of the big um, security issues of the region and really the world as a whole is um, the Cyprus problem which of course directly involves both Turkey and your country of Greece. And um, I was wondering, do you think there's hope for, for a solution in that problem? And is there a way we can address the concerns and fears that both communities have? Good question and very difficult to answer. Uh, let me say upfront, I'm not terribly optimistic. Um, what you have on the island is, well, um, officially four players, you know, the two communities, Greek Cypriots, Turkey Cypriots, plus Turkey and Greece. Now, Greece has nowadays very limited influence and no direct involvement. Uh, unfortunately, Turkey Cypriots are a minority in their own part of the island because you have now many settlers from, from Turkey. And Turkey Cypriots are not being heard by, by Ankara, by Turkey. So you have two main players, each one with a different agenda. Turkey, there is a, uh, an important book by a former Turkish foreign minister and prime minister. Uh, Ahmed Davutoglu, and he says very clearly when he discusses Cyprus that even if there was a single Turkish Cypriot living in Cyprus, the island would still have tremendous importance for Turkey because of its strategic location. So that means Turkey is there not to defend the Turkish Cypriots, but because it has its own interests and it wants to stay in the island. You know, they don't want to withdraw their troops. They want to retain the right of guarantee. So, and that will be very difficult for the Greek Cypriots to accept because they would say, and they have a point, I mean, this is not 19th century. We, know, we don't need guarantor powers. We don't need foreign troops uh, to keep the peace. This is 
a state which is part of the EU. Now, let's find a solution without third parties. At the same time, you ask correctly, how can we address the fears of the two communities? Because both of them went through traumatic experiences in the past. So we need to try to find ways to provide guarantees to both, to, to both communities that the day after a, an agreement, a solution will be secure, stable, more prosperous. Not an easy task, I'm afraid. That's, um, I guess I'm sorry to hear that. I guess uh, you mentioned in your response that you wanted to find a, you hope to find a way that uh, Greece and Turkey could work together to find the solution. But there are um, some other influences on the island, such as like the UK. Can you elaborate a bit on what other governments are doing on Cyprus and how that's affecting the issue? Well, the UK, let me explain, according to the Constitution of Cyprus, drafted back in 1960, you have three guarantor powers, Greece, Turkey, and the United Kingdom, which still has two sovereign bases, military bases on the island, which they would like to keep for the definite future. So they have been a player, but I would say they have been a minor player, uh, same as Russia, which has its own interest. They have uh, an economic presence on the island, plus a few thousand Russian citizens living there. Uh, if possible, they would like to prevent uh, a United Cyprus from becoming part of NATO and officially joining the Western community of nations. But when it comes to third parties, I would say the really important player, which is currently missing, is the US. Uh, it's very difficult to imagine a solution in Cyprus without the active involvement of the US. They tried in the past, they have been unsuccessful. Uh, but again, let me say, uh, it doesn't matter who wins the, the, the elections, uh, but hopefully there will be some kind of engagement of the US in diplomatic efforts to resolve the Cyprus problem because they are the only player that can put real pressure on all sides involved. Interesting. Uh, thank you. And then um, I'm going to switch topics a little bit right now, if you're okay. I'm going to switch it to the, the topic of the Balkans, which is a region that obviously affects you very closely in Greece that has uh, been unstable for a very long time. And um, I'm kind of wondering, um, what can you elaborate on the possible security concerns that you see in the region, especially involving Greece or other Western countries? Good question. Let me remind our audience that World War One started in the Balkans uh, back in 1914. Uh, and the Balkans remained unstable for a long time. Of course, there was a freeze of the problems during the Cold War. Then we had the Civil War, uh, which led to the collapse of Yugoslavia uh, and caused plenty of problems and a lot of pain for the region. Now, things have been more quiet. This is not to say that all problems have been resolved, but things are definitely more stable than they used to be in the past. And Greece, well, um, for a period of time, we, we, we used to be part of the, of the regional problem, having issues and disagreements with some of our northern neighbors and especially um, Northern Macedonia. Now, uh, in, in a couple of years ago, we signed an agreement, which was not a perfect one, but you know, such kind of compromise agreements are 
very rarely perfect agreements. You know, it has to, it's a give and take. At the end of the day, I think that agreement has been a stabilizing development for the region. So the so-called name issue with our northern neighbors has been resolved. We are in good terms. We are their biggest trading partner. Uh, we help them in NATO and so on and so forth. Relations with Albania has been improving. Bulgaria and Romania are members of NATO and the EU, no problems there. So if you ask me what are the problems in NATO today, I would put my finger on Kosovo. And we have had some interesting developments over the past few weeks. With US mediation, the two sides agreed uh, to improve their relations and also to negotiate some exchange of territory. Um, now, one has to be cautious here because the Balkans, uh, uh, most of the countries are not homogeneous. So when you start talking about exchange of territory, uh, that may create a, a dangerous precedent. And you may have other countries like Russia did with a Kosovo uh, precedent. They used that in Crimea. They said, well, uh, you, you guys, you NATO did that in, in Kosovo. So why are you blame, blaming us for doing more or less the same thing in, in Crimea? So one has to be careful about um, exchange of territories that may create a, a, a dangerous precedent. Another problem uh, in the Balkans, and a very difficult one, is Bosnia-Herzegovina. Now, despite you know, extensive uh, international presence and economic assistance, this has been a semi-failed state for the past 25 years. And I'm not terribly optimistic about the future. Problem is, you have you know, three components, three uh, ethnic groups, uh, Serbs, Croats, and the Muslims, which don't want to live with each other. No, they would rather be uh, united with their mother countries, Serbia, Croatia, and then the Muslims would remain independent. A very difficult uh, problem to tackle. So the Balkans are doing much better than in the past, and the situation will improve if they manage to join the EU in the next few years, but we still have issues to, to tackle. Definitely. And um, on the topic of EU membership, recently France vetoed Albania's application to the EU and Firearms application as well. And I'm wondering, do you think that we can get to a point uh, in the near future where these countries can join the EU and get on the next step to a solution? I'm confident that they will. Now, let me go back to my previous answer. Um, the, the French position had a lot to do with intra-EU politics, they wanted to send a message to the Germans uh, regarding different issues. And also you still have the so-called enlargement fatigue. But again, uh, Albania is, I think, uh, 5 million. Uh, Northern Macedonia is, is 2 million. I mean, eventually it will be easy to integrate those countries. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that this will happen in the next few years. That's great to hear. Um, hopefully something can happen and things uh, can get better in the region. And then I guess I'm going to shift the topic one last time, this time to the um, onslaught of, of COVID-19. And uh, back in 2012, I believe you wrote a paper uh, saying, or discussing how Mediterranean countries responded to the 2008 financial crisis. And um, we're now entering or have entered another financial crisis due to COVID-19. 
Do you think that um, Mediterranean states can react uh, better than last time or differently than they did last time? I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic because there seems to be a vacuum in the Mediterranean when it comes to cooperation. Now, in the past, in the 1990s, uh, the, the EU launched its own initiative called the Barcelona Process or uh, Euro-Mediterranean Partnership. And the idea was to create opportunities for countries in the north and the south of the Mediterranean to work together on a number of issues, you know, political insecurity, human rights, uh, economic development, uh, the environment, and so on and so forth. Now, this didn't go as expected. It was succeeded by the Mediterranean Union, which is a more technical um, initiative. But again, one looks at the, at the region, uh, and, and there is very little in terms of initiatives uh, and, and fora for cooperation between various countries. We have lots of flashpoints, you know, places like Syria, Libya, Cyprus, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but little cooperation between the countries. So I'm not terribly optimistic that, you know, all of a sudden, you now we have a real problem, of course. COVID-19 had a tremendous impact uh, on various uh, issues. But keep in mind that many Mediterranean countries are relying heavily on tourism as a source of income. And as you can imagine, there was very little tourism this year. So we all took a blow. Now, does that mean that we will now sit around the table together and try to find ways to cooperate? I wish I could say yes, but I'm not terribly optimistic. All right, well, thank you, Professor. And I we've got time for one last question. So I was wondering, um, how has COVID-19 affected um, security relations in the Mediterranean, just in general? Well, um, the, the impact was not um, significant and noticeable. And the reason was that tensions were very high even before COVID-19. Um, you know, we had our, our differences and problems and, and tensions in, in, in various areas, various parts of the broader region. So the, the, the impact of COVID-19, yes, it complicated our lives uh, it, it burdened our economies, it hurt us in various ways, uh, but security well, was not affected uh, in, a, in a negative or positive way. But I'm, I'm really sad to say that uh, you know, we're in a, in a bad situation to start with um, and, and things did not improve. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that um, things haven't been improving and I really do hope for both the Mediterranean region and the world as a whole that uh, we can get through this soon and we can solve these issues that have been uh, plaguing us for a very long time. But um, I think that's all we have time for today. Professor Dokos, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and talk with me and to everyone about uh, these issues. I really appreciated you doing that and I really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a pleasure, Joey. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Professor. And thank all of you for listening. Please remember to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center on SoundCloud to join us next time for the next episode of Students Talk Security. Thank you, goodbye. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash.
or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap. <laughs>